All right, beloved, uh, we'll get started. Uh, thanks for coming. Nice to have you. Say again? Oh, thanks for the invite. Yeah, well, you're most welcome. So, you know, there's a lot of things we do in the Christian walk, in the Christian life, um, to practice our Christianity. We come to church, we pray, we sing, we worship, we serve, we give. Um, but one of the classic ways of, of discipleship is Bible study. And so we believe here uh, strongly in the value of Scripture and its uh, trustworthiness and the way in which God has and continues to speak through it and kind of um, give shape to the life of the church. And so that was one of the reasons we thought we would, we would offer a Wednesday night Bible study and see how it went. And then the other reason, which I think I said in church the other day, is that I've been invited to write a commentary on Mark. And in the commentary series, they want it to be aimed not necessarily at scholars, but then not necessarily at children, but kind of somewhere in between the church and the academy. So that it might be used as a textbook, you know, for undergraduates, but that it would also be helpful if a group of Christians wanted to do a Bible study. So I'm doing that. And I, in all um, honesty, my intentions and plans are to steal whatever you say and to incorporate that in, into the commentary. Um, yes. Yeah. So we will, we will write these things down. So as commentaries go, um, it has a verse-by-verse -verse explanation of the Scripture, but then it has two additional sections that some commentaries don't have. It has a section called Reflection, which are questions about, uh, to think about, and then it has a section called Response, which are things that you might do in your Christian walk as, as a response to that passage of Scripture. So the commentary will be a bit more detailed than what the lessons um, these next few weeks will be. Um, there'll be a bit more of an overview. So what we'll do is I'm going to read uh, a passage of Scripture. Uh, we'll say a prayer. I will teach for about uh, 20 minutes, a 20-minute lesson. And then we have little discussion uh, groups, chairs, pods uh, in the back, and I have I have a, a little handout to kind of guide us through that discussion, but we'll break up into groups of four and kind of talk through that, uh, and we'll give ourselves about 15 minutes or so, see how the conversations go, and then we'll come back for a closing kind of 10 minutes. So that's kind of the format that will follow. It's very, very um, kind of open. Uh, the schedule is, it starts tonight, it lasts for seven weeks, which will take us to the Wednesday of the week before Thanksgiving. So not the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, but the week before that. So that seven weeks. We're going to take off for the holidays because it's a busy time around church, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then we'll, we'll kind of relaunch a second part um, at the beginning of the year. And so this will be Mark 1 through 8. That'll be Mark 9 through 16. And if it all goes well and we're interested in such things, uh, we think we might do a second one in the spring on Bible study. Like, not, not necessarily on a particular book, but more generally. Like, what's the best way to study the Bible? 
So um, let's start with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to read part of Mark chapter 1, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we are grateful. We're grateful for your Son and our Savior. We're grateful for your Spirit. We're grateful for the church that uh, you have called us to be a part of. Uh, We're grateful for the scriptures um, that have been inspired and written down so that we might uh, better know you and the story of your love. Lord, as we come together tonight, uh, we pray that you would uh, clear our minds of everything else, all of the uh, responsibilities uh, that we have that might impinge on our concentration, and you might help us focus on you. May we have ears to hear uh, what the Spirit is saying to us and to Oasis and to the church at large, and may we have uh, wills that are full of receptivity and courage uh, to respond and live in such a way that it's faithful to your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, reading from the Gospel of Mark, in the uh, this is the New Revised Standard Version. In the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole of Judea countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed the one who was more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers or fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And he went a little further, and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and they, uh, with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astonished, or they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed. 
And they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame became, uh, began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Um, let's just skip down to verse 35. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and he went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. And he answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And they went out through Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. There's certainly more here than we could cover tonight. So we'll start at the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That says so much. Uh, the first verse is a bit of a title, really, for the whole book. Uh, we'll talk more about what the term gospel uh, means. But it says two particular things about Jesus. It says that Jesus is the Christ, and it says that Jesus is the Son of God. And those two things are quite distinct. Um, to say that Jesus is the Christ uh, already carries with it a lot of history. Sometimes I think um, it's difficult to realize just how Jewish this story is. Jesus was Jew. His mom and dad were Jew. His brothers and sisters were Jew. Everybody in his town was Jewish. Everybody he knew was Jewish. And the whole story is kind of very rooted in Jewish, Jewish history. When we, say that, when we say Jesus Christ, I think sometimes people think that maybe that's like his last name. Like he's the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. Um, like it's not like his friends came over and they said, hey, Mrs. Christ, can Jesus come out and play? Um, Christ is a title. Um, it's the synonym for Messiah. So everywhere you read Christ, you could substitute the word Messiah and it's the same thing. It means anointed one, but more than that, it means particularly anointed to be king. Um, in the Old Testament, there is a fair amount of messianic expectation that came along, but that messianic expectation doesn't, isn't found in the Old Testament as a whole. In fact, we don't actually see any type of kind of messianic expectation until we get to Isaiah chapter 40, which is the verse that Mark quotes here in, in, in um, verse 2 and 3. Um, he says, I quote from Isaiah, interestingly enough, the first bit comes from Micah, and then the second bit, I've already closed my Bible, it comes from, from Isaiah, uh, a, a voice is heard crying in the wilderness. Um, if Mark was a student at the college, we would have to teach him a little bit about like um, documenting his stuff better, like don't say this came from Isaiah and then quote Micah. Like if you're going to say, maybe you could have said the prophets or maybe you could have said Micah and Isaiah. But in any case, we'll give him a pass. Um, he wasn't having to write a modern day college term paper. But let's, let's think about that. So the messianic expectation doesn't even pop up until Isaiah. So what, what is the Messiah? Um, what is this anointed one? And what are they supposed to do? So we have to kind of take a big step back and understand the, the, the story as a whole. The two biggest parts of Jewish history are the exile, excuse me, the exodus and the exile. Um, it would be difficult actually to come up with a modern day equivalent. Uh, the exodus, the closest thing maybe to the exodus is uh, 4th of July. Like it's their Independence Day. 
God had promised Abraham that he would bless him and he would bless his descendants and that through him that he would make a nation and through that nation he would bless the world. That's a great promise. But 400 years after God promised Abraham that, the only descendants that we know of that he had at the time were slaves in Egypt. Promise unfulfilled. And so the the rising up of Moses and the deliverance of the Jews from, from Pharaoh is the promise of Abraham kind of being fulfilled. The Exodus is their Independence Day. Um, it's, their, it's their major national holiday. It's when God's promise was fulfilled. They got set free from slavery, and now they're a people. So one thing to kind of hold in our minds is that um, the Jews believed in one God, which was not particularly um, common in ancient people groups. Most of the ancient peoples kind of believed in lots of gods. There was the God of this and the God of that, the God of fertility and the God of wine and the God of war, the God of love. But they only believed in this, this kind of one God. They also believed about that one God that that one God had chosen them. And so kind of monotheism and election kind of go hand in hand in Jewish theology. So there is this one God, and he chose us, and now he's given us this place. So this, this is, the exodus is a huge part of who they are. Fast forward. Uh, things don't go so well, uh, mostly for uh, the Hebrews um, living as a new nation. They don't always follow the rules they're supposed to. They sometimes worship gods they shouldn't. They often focus on things like money and power and land as opposed to focusing kind of on godly things. And uh, the relationship gets uh, tenuous. Eventually, it kind of breaks down. And the story of the, of the Jewish kings is a bit a story of failure. Like, kings opens up with Solomon. You have one big kingdom. We'll call it the United Kingdom. Not like the British United Kingdom, but the Jewish United Kingdom. And then Second Kings, by the time we get to the end, not only has the, the country gone through a divorce and we ended up with just two tribes left out of 12, but even those two get taken into destruction. So the exile is uh, imprinted on the Jewish psyche like no other event. I mean, it's like... It's like the Holocaust is imprinted on the Jewish psyche. It's a little bit, I mean, just a little bit, like 9-11 is imprinted on our psyche. It's like, it like changed the way they thought about things. The exile is the death of the nation. If the exodus is the birth of the nation, the exile is the death of the nation. I mean, where's God? When we only believe in one God and he chose us, except now... We're not, we're not in control, and we get, you know, we get kicked out. We're in captivity in Babylon. The few people that got left over, even those folks uh, retreated to Egypt with Jeremiah. That's a sad story, but for another day. So when this story opens, the Gospel of Mark, the good news that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah was one who had been promised to come and bring the exile to an end. All the messianic expectation in the Old Testament comes after the exile. 
the Messiah is, the, is God's deliverer, God's anointed king, God's man of faith and power who's going to come and lead. And most of them thought in kind of a militaristic, economic, political, powerful way, Israel back to independence. Because the, the story after the exile, the, the physical exile maybe lasted for a generation or two. But the exile never quite ended. Uh, and we know that it didn't end, at least in their hearts and minds, because there still was a lot of messianic expectation. Like you wouldn't have messianic expectation if you didn't in some way think we're still suffering from the exile. So they were suffering from the exile uh, politically, economically, socially. I mean, first it was the Babylonians, but then it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and then it was the Romans. Um, but the Jews just didn't have the kind of independence that you would associate with, oh yeah, God's blessed us. God has set us up. So to say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that we think, or that Mark thinks, Mark, Mark is confessing, professing, that Jesus is the anointed one whom God is sending to bring the exile once and for all to an end. And he says this by quoting Isaiah 40, which is, A voice is heard in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. So what's interesting about Isaiah is that um, the, the first half of Isaiah, he's kind of talking to his contemporaries. Uh, Isaiah is prophe- prophesying to Ahaz and to Hezekiah. That gets us to like chapter 39. The next, the next part of Isaiah, the second half, uh, chapters 40 through 66, are not addressed to Isaiah's contemporaries, but are rather addressed to the Jews in exile, uh, which the exile wouldn't take place for 100 years after Isaiah's uh, death. But that language is the earliest language in Jewish history of messianic expectation. And it is filled with those passages about what we think the Messiah might be like and those who would herald the Messiah or announce his coming. And so Isaiah 40 was kind of just filled with this messianic expectation that that God would send a deliverer. And Mark associates Jesus with that person. What's interesting about these two things that are said about Jesus in in verse 1, he's the Messiah and he's the Son of God. Well, as the reader, we we know that from verse 1. Here's the good news, that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Son of God. But all the characters in the story seem to be unaware of this. Like, there's no one in the story that refers to Jesus as the Messiah or as the Son of God, at least not for a long time. So the reader knows, or the readers know, that that Mark is saying this about Jesus. But the characters in the story are kind of finding out Right? They're discovering, you know, Jesus is speaking to them. He's calling them. He's teaching with this other kind of authority. He seems to have uh, power even over kind of spiritual things. Um, he's claiming things that other teachers don't claim. But um, if, we, if we pause for a second and kind of take a long look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1.1 says Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. It's not until we get to chapter 8 that Peter says, you are the Christ. And when he says that, it's as though everyone in the story now knows it. Like, cat's out of the bag. 
He's the Christ. And so the story pivots there at chapter 8. It's like the first half of the gospel is to, is to um, bring us up to Peter's confession, you are the Christ. It pivots then, and the story moves from Galilee, being Galilee-centered, to being Jerusalem-centered. And that story then starts from chapter 9, leading up to 15, with the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's when Jesus is on the cross that we get the second confession. If the first confession is that you are the Christ by Peter, which is the first thing that Mark told us, the good news of Jesus Christ, the second confession is on the lips of a Roman centurion. Surely this is the Son of God. And so the story, what the readers know in verse 1 of chapter 1, the characters in the story don't seem to know to chapter 8 that he's the Christ, and then at the very end, chapter 15, that he's the Son of God. What's interesting about that confession, um, the emperor, the ruler of the day, uh, was called the Son of God. The Romans believed that their emperors were divine. And so when the emperor died, he kind of went to be with the other former emperors, a form of ancestor worship. The new emperor, the son of the divine, was referred to as the son of God. His birthday, which was a national holiday, or emperor empire holiday, um, was called the good news, the gospel. So the gospel was often celebrated about the Son of God in Roman culture, except gospel meant birthday of the emperor, and the emperor was seen as the Son of God. So when, when the writers of Scripture, whether it's Mark or, um, some, you know, Mark uh, followed Paul around for a while, Paul will say things like, Jesus is Lord. Uh, when he says Jesus is Lord, there's an implication there that Caesar is not. Um, it has a very strong kind of political implication. So I know in church it's not good to talk about politics, especially in times like this. And so perhaps this will bring our Wednesday night Bible study to an end. It'll be our first one and our last one. Um, but I'll just say this, that um, to believe that Jesus is Lord in that time meant that Caesar was not, that Jesus is the real son of God that the emperor is not, that the good news is that Jesus is coming with a message and it's not the good news of Rome. So the good news of Rome was Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Look, look what we've done for you. We've provided peace. We've provided economic prosperity. Um, we've conquered the world for you. And here it is, Romans. Uh, the problem with that peace, of course, is that it came by the sword and that it marginalized everyone who wasn't Roman and that it, it uh, was full of, of, of sex and debauchery and greed and everything that happens when people try to be in charge. Uh, Jesus' gospel seems to be something quite different, uh, and we'll talk about that briefly in just a minute. Um, but this, this message is a political message, and the, and the political message that I think it would say to us today is that we have no savior in a political candidate. Uh, we, have, we have no savior in, in, a, in a nationality. I mean, all of those things have their place. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, 
we, we serve a king. We, we have a leader. Um, we, we ought not be looking towards someone else uh, to kind of fulfill, fulfill that role for us. Um, Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God. All right, we're going to break into small groups, but I just wanted to say this real quickly. The gospel, um, that good news is for Mark uh, kind of defining the genre of what he's writing, but also the message. And the message gets defined by Jesus in verse um, 14 and 15. So Jesus came preaching the gospel. Now, when I think gospel, sometimes I think the message about Jesus Right, that Jesus died on the cross, that he was raised on the third day, that if I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus is the Son of God, you know, Romans 10, 9 and 10. But what's interesting is when Jesus came preaching the gospel, the good news, he didn't talk about his death, he didn't talk about his resurrection, he didn't talk about confession of sin. The good news for Jesus was that the kingdom of God was at hand, that somehow through him, the kingdom was being established. And so for the last, I don't know, seven or eight weeks, we've been preaching on Sunday morning about the parables of the kingdom. And now we're starting a new series on Sundays that look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and what the kingdom looks like. Uh, Jesus' kingdom, this is the good news, that the kingdom has come. We need to figure out what that looks like. And Mark has a version of what that looks like. In Matthew, it's a, um, blessed are the poor, don't just uh, not um, commit murder, but don't hate. Don't just not um, uh, commit adultery, but don't lust. Don't just love your neighbor, but love your enemy. It's to turn the other cheek, go the second mile, give them your shirt when they sue you for your coat, Judge not, lest you be judged, kingdom. And it's a way of living in this world that's full of grace and faith and forgiveness. That's the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And for Jesus, that was the good news. Eventually, the church would expound on that, right? So the very heart of the gospel is that the kingdom of God has come. And then there's the story about the gospel, which is also good news, which includes the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then there's a more, more of that story, which includes the story of how the early Christians, through the letters of, of Paul and James and Peter and John, worked that out. But we have to, I think, it's important to realize how those things are related to each other. At the very heart of the gospel is that the kingdom of God has come and Jesus is the king. We back out a little bit to get this, the good news about that gospel and back out a little bit more and we get how those first Christians kind of were trying to live that out. So uh, we're going to spend, it's uh, 7.30 we're going to spend 15 minutes in those groups, uh, and then we'll kind of come back and we'll reflect um, as a larger group as, as to what we've talked about or what I've talked about, open it up for kind of question and response. All right. Um, uh, questions, comments? So do you think John the Baptist 
That's a good question. Um, later in the Gospel of Mark, he, he sends people to kind of say, are you the one or not? So he seems to be a little confused. He is an extraordinarily important character in the story. It's hard to, un, um, to overestimate. It's easy to underestimate uh, John's role. All of those kind of prophetic figures, so Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Emmons, Obadiah, all of them, right? Oh, the, the question was, did John the Baptist, uh, as a character in the story, did he know who Jesus was? And um, he is very, very important. Gospel of John in the, in the prologue, which is only talking about the incarnate word, uh, mentions John the Baptist twice. I mean, he's, he's like prophet of prophets. He's the Elijah that's come. But later in Mark, he, like, he gets arrested and he sends some of his disciples like, are you the one or should we be looking for somebody else? Um, he is an important character. The way he baptized, I mean, th- there was a lot of people who baptized in that day, um, but it was self-baptism. Like you'd baptize yourself and you'd do it daily. Um, they had these little self-baptismal pools that people would baptize themselves in. But he was very different. He baptized the person. It was kind of a once and for all for, you know, confession of sins and and forgiveness of sins. Um, so he had really changed the game. And Jesus is definitely following John initially. And then it says when John is arrested, he starts doing this. Um, I, I think he kind, of, he kind of picks up some cues. John was a bit more abrasive. Jesus is a bit more sly. Um, John gets his head cut off. Jesus um, makes it for a number of years before he gets, you know, nailed. Um, Sorry. That was an unintended pun. Um, Yeah. Other thoughts or questions? But don't put that pun on the book. Thanks. Yeah, I'll have an editor, and they will help me. Uh, this came up in the small group that I was in. The question was, um, I'd, I'd made the case that the gospel, that the kingdom of God was at hand, and it wasn't just about confession of your sins or, or Jesus' death. And uh, they said, but Jesus says, um, it says Jesus came preaching the gospel, repent and believe in the gospel. So what, what does that mean if not confession of sins? I think we, we sometimes confuse the word with repent with confession. And, and in this case, uh, repent means to change direction or turn. And I, I don't even think he's saying, like, repent from sins. Like, it doesn't say that there. It says repent and believe in the gospel. And the gospel is the kingdom of God is at hand. I think what he's wanting them to change direction on is stop following after your expectations of the Messiah because the Pharisees wanted, you know, a religious leader who'd make everybody more holy. And the Zealots wanted a military leader who would you know, let them rise up and kill the Romans. And the Sadducees wanted a more economic leader to kind of, like, get them together. And, and Jesus is like, you guys got to stop this. It's, it's, it's not this type of kingdom. So the repent there, I think, means, like, turn away from your expectations of the kingdom. Come and follow me. And, and see, see if this is not what it looks like when God comes back to town. I think it's 
worth considering. And I think it plays out in later chapters of Mark. Does gospel mean truth? Gospel means good news. Yeah. This is good news. Oh, yeah. Yes. So the question is, what parallels are there between Jesus' contemporaries and what sometimes we have? So there was a group uh, called the Essenes. Uh, they were separatist. Um, they, they, they wouldn't go to the temple because they thought it was corrupt. They kind of lived out in the wilderness. They had their own rules. They had their own way of being things. Imagine someone who homeschools their kids and only listens to Christian music and uh, teaches at a private Christian college. <laughs> Just kidding. That's me. <laughs> um, so yeah, you have like a separatist group. Like the only way to, move, to be a part of, to live in the world is to separate completely. And so their expectation was um, someone who's going to swoop in to, and deliver. I think we got plenty of our contemporaries that fit into that category. And I think sometimes we fit a little bit, at least some of us. The left behind Certainly the left behind, but, but all, all of this kind of Christian alternative culture move. But I mean, swooping in. And oh, definitely the kind of the swoop, the swoop bit, yeah. Um, then there are some, like the Sadducees and the Herodians, uh, they were actually living a really good life, like economically and in terms of influence. They needed a Messiah, kind of, right? They needed one because it would be even better than what they had because they could kick out the Romans and actually be on the very top. And I think we have a lot of people in our lives that experience that too. I'm a little bit there, I think. I mean, why do I need Jesus to come back? Come see my house. Come see my job. Look at my family. Look at the cars we drive and the vacations we go on. Really? Is this the life that's so bad I need a deliverer? I mean, it's easy to assimilate. Um, oh, gosh, the zealots. I mean, some people think the only way we're going to move forward is if we kill everybody who doesn't believe what we believe. Um, and there are plenty of Christians that think that, you know, the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim. Um, and there have been plenty of Christians who believe in the past the only good Jew is a dead Jew. Uh, the only good atheist is a dead atheist. Like, like the only way forward is if somehow we kill the other. So that's the zealots. So between, ze- oh, Pharisees. That's a, can't leave those guys out. So those, those are kind of the hyper-religious. Not, not the separatists like the Essenes, but the ones who, who think they know it all. Um, so God forgive me, I'm in that category too. Um, But yeah, to answer your question, Phil, I think there are a lot of parallels. And I think each of those groups I talked about have their own expectations about who Jesus is and what they think living for Jesus looks like and what they expect Jesus to do when he comes back. Like there are a lot of people expecting Jesus to come back and kill somebody. Um, That's what a lot of Jews thought the Messiah was going to do the first time around. So I guess the first time around, he came in, he's kind of a nice guy. But when he's coming back, he's going to be a mean guy. Uh, if their expectation, based on their reading of Scripture, was wrong, I think that should give us cause for pause. 
that we have the potential of reading Scripture and our expectation needs to be held gently before we think he's going to come back as some kind of warmonger. Yeah, it reminds me, it's not in the Gospel of Mark, it's in the Gospel of John, but it's such a telling thing. The high priest at the time was a guy named Caiaphas. And um, he's looking at Jesus. He's kind of disgusted that this guy is making these claims he's making. And he says to him, look, it would be better for one guy to die so the rest of us could live. How much truth can one guy say and not realize it? Like he's saying it's better for Jesus to die so that he doesn't end up leading a revolt against the Romans where they all die. But theologically, spiritually, we know that it actually is the death of Jesus that provides life. But that's not what Caiaphas meant. But then Caiaphas goes on to say, because that's his debate with Jesus one-on-one. They get Jesus before Pilate, and he says to Pilate, this is the high priest, like the top minister of Judaism, says to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Ouch. You know, what a sellout. So, I mean, I think Christianity historically has done really well in countries where Christianity was illegal. Um, there are more Christians who live in China than in any other country on the planet. And in China, Christianity has been illegal for 80 years. I mean, I, I, think, that, I think that speaks to your, your point. Uh, early Pentecostals, I know, I know we get, we're a very eclectic group. We kind of come from a lot of different backgrounds. Early Pentecostals argued for not voting, Phil. Um, they said, I'm... I'm part of the kingdom of God. Um, I don't, you know, I live in this nation, but I'm a citizen of heaven. And so um, in the 1910s, uh, 1920s, not all of them, um, but there was a part of them that, that felt like their identity was so rooted in heaven or in, in the heavenly way of being in this world that it didn't matter who Pharaoh was, it doesn't matter who Caesar is, it doesn't matter who the president is, right, or the governor. They're, they can live faithfully for Jesus, regardless of the powers that be. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so obviously we had, we had one guy, Simon the Zealot, um, but we did have Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was... Oh, yes, the question is um, contrasting... Uh, the various groups with their expectations that didn't seem to match Jesus with Jesus' closest followers. Like what, what did they... Call. I mean, yeah. Mark talks in this chapter, it's almost like a Coke commercial is going down. Now. It is, it's it is God very, God. yeah. Let's go! Yeah, um, it's real funny. Um, I hope that I don't do this. A lot of people who speak in public on a regular basis have like a catchword or catchphrase. And when students are, are starting to speak in public, it's often um or like, okay. Maybe I do it, maybe I don't. I hope I don't. Mark uh, has a catchword. It's like he can't quite get out a whole little story without saying immediately. And immediately, Jesus was thrown out in the wilderness. And immediately, Jesus came and got baptized. And immediately, he called, 
it's like, it's like this unbelievable pace. Like if we're actually trying to follow his story, he's like running. Um, but, but the particular people that get mentioned here are all, all fishermen. Um, what my mom would call regular Joes. Um, so if we were to add up, this is maybe a good way to think about it, if we were to add up all of the Essenes, the religious separatists, that was my homeschool group, and all the Pharisees, uh, the religious elites, and all the Sadducees and Herodians, the more economically driven, and all the zealots, if we added every single member of that group, it constituted about 10% of the population which means that the vast majority of the population were regular folk that didn't fit into those categories. Um, they were the Amhar Aretz, uh, the people of the land. They were farmers, carpenters, fishermen, uh, folk. Uh, they get des- described in the Gospels as the crowd or as the multitude. And Jesus' disciples, with the exception of Matthew and Simon... Um, and even Matthew is a tax collector, so he's not one of those categories I said. So with the exception of the one, Simon the Zealot, who's different than Simon Peter, he had two, two disciples named Simon. Um, yeah, the other 11 did not fit into the, those categories. Uh, they were regular folk, part of the crowd, part of the multitude, part of the people of the land, which I kind of like. Um, and so who's to say what their expectations were? I think a lot of them were just kind of trying to make it through the week, make it through the day, live in life to provide for the next day. Poverty was pretty high. Literacy was pretty low. You know, they were fishing and farming and building, trading. For all that, they seemed intelligent. They, they wrote great and Peter roughest seeming of them mm-hmm. was a good writer. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Peter, uh, in terms of the Greek of the New Testament, uh, Peter is by far the most advanced. I mean, it's like great literature. Uh, he, huh? Yeah. Uh, it, says, it says in there that Sylvanus is his um, kind of amanuensis, his secretary. I got to think he had some help. <laughs> I'm saying is that you read the Gospel of John, if you didn't know better, you thought some uneducated fisherman wrote it. I mean, some uneducated fisherman did write it. But, I mean, it, it reads very, very conversationally, very colloquially. Um, when you get to Luke, it's kind of highfalutin. But then Luke, Greek was his first language, not his second or third. So you kind of expect that. You get to Peter, and it's like as good as Luke or better, which doesn't seem to match their their life history. Um, but then, as we're reading Peter, you see this reference to Silvanus writing stuff, and you think, hmm, maybe old Silvanus kind of helped him out a bit. Um, having an amenuizus was very, very common in, in the ancient time. Um, Tertius, for example, actually penned Romans. Um, it says that in 1622 of Romans, I, Tertius, who write this letter, also greet you in the Lord. So it was a pretty common thing. Holy Ghost Rider? Holy Ghost Rider. Oh, no, that's Paperback Rider. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, Writer. Oh. Yes, I got it. 
I know. It was, the, it was, it was much funnier than I, I killed it. Um, I'd like to say this. Uh, once again, man, I really appreciate you coming out. Um, I think to kind of uh, prime the pump and um, kind of pique our interest, Next week, we'll be looking at uh, Mark chapter 2, um, and we'll highlight a few passages in there. So between now and then, I would encourage you to read Mark chapter 2. Uh, I would also encourage you, if you're so inclined, to, to look at a commentary on, on Mark chapter 2. Um, for those of you who might not know, commentaries are interesting books. It's one, one that I'm writing where someone kind of goes verse by verse and tries to explain um, what they think you know it means. Um, scriptures uh, aren't so easy to understand, really. I think they need a little bit of explanation. Um, sometimes history helps. Sometimes theology helps. Sometimes the church helps. Um, reading, reading in community, I think, is a healthy thing. So, uh, would love to have you back next week. Um, would love to talk to any of you anytime about this, um, about Mark or the Gospels, particularly about Mark, between now and then. Next Wednesday, I'll be here at 7 o'clock, and we'll be looking at Mark chapter 2.